Good morning, church. I want to start this sermon off with a question. What is the hardest thing you ever decided to do? What is the hardest thing you've ever decided to do? Maybe it's raising children, maybe getting married, maybe deciding to immigrate to this nation, maybe it's uh, going through medical school or going through some uh, physical training, a, a martial art perhaps, or maybe you enlisted into the military. These are all difficult things, and uh, I think about a grueling marathon. I, I, some of my friends are running marathons now, and um, I have not run a marathon before, but I think I asked them, what is it like? And they know it's going to be hard. They know it's going to be grueling. They know, they know their lungs and their legs and their arms are going to be tested. Even their mind, the conflicting thoughts were going through their mind, particularly in the initial portion, it was told. But you know that a reward is coming. By finishing, you know that a reward is coming. So therefore, you're willing to endure difficulty. You're willing to endure pain and suffering to some levels. You understand, when there's no pain, there's no gain. Anything that's meaningful in life comes at a cost. It's, it's difficult. It's hard. It's hard. So as Christians, we just sung amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Amen and amen. We're saved by grace. Last week we talked about how at Mark 10, 27, that we're saved by divine grace. It's all a work of God. Praise God. And nothing that we do earns or merits our salvation. However, committing to Christ is difficult. Committing to Christ is difficult. And the Lord maps out a course for us to run in while we're on this side of eternity. That's not always level. Sometimes the ground is level for us as we run through life. Sometimes it's uphill, downhill. Sometimes it rains, it's freezing. Sometimes it's hot. The course is different. And we all are, have different strengths, different weaknesses. So uh, uh, downhill might be harder for some than others. Maybe you like running in the cold. Maybe you like running in the heat. We're all different. So as God maps out the course of our lives, we all struggle through different things. And on this side of eternity in heaven, there's no more tears, no more mourning, no more sadness. But on this side of eternity... You know life can be hard, particularly even as a Christian. And you know that where there's no pain, there's no gain. And uh, so the purpose of this sermon, I want to give you the purpose of this sermon is this, is to encourage those who are going through a hard season right now. I want to encourage you, whatever you're going through, I pray that this will keep you running. This will keep you running in the race that God has set for you and me. But also I want to, the second aspect to why we want to preach this is to exhort those who are in cruise control to get running in the race, right? And so this is where our Lord is exhorting the 12 disciples to have the right mindset. And I believe out of Mark 10, 28 to 45, God is exhorting us. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, let's turn to Mark 10, uh, 28 to 45 is where I'll be reading and preaching out of. And as you run, as you turn there, the disciples, they're getting the baton ready to be handed off. In about a week or so, the Lord will be going to the cross and dying, and they need to take over. The 12 disciples need to take over, and they're not ready yet. 
They're struggling over the same issue. Who is the greatest? I mean, that's in their minds. That's in their hearts. As the Lord is getting ready to hand the baton off, they're not ready to take the stick properly. So let's rise as we read Mark 10, 28 to 45, and hear from God today. Mark 10, 28. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake except one who will receive 100 times as much now in the present age houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed him followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him, and three days later he'll rise again. Then James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those who have been, whom it has been prepared. And hearing this, the ten became, began to feel indignant with James and John. And calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servants. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this word. I pray, Lord, that we will be able to preach your word clearly and faithfully. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would give us ears to hear. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. The title of the sermon is called No Pain, No Gain. No Pain, No Gain. And uh, the three headings I want to give you ahead of time just so we can follow along easier is this. Number one, sacrificing for Christ. Sacrificing for Christ. Number two, suffering with Christ. Suffering with Christ. And number three, serving like Christ, serving like Christ. So let's get to the first point here, or first heading. The Christian life it calls for sacrificing for Christ, sacrificing for Christ. What was Peter thinking when he saw the rich young ruler walk away? This just happened moments earlier before Peter opens his mouth in verse 28. He saw a man 
who had everything the world could offer make a conscious decision to protect what he had. He saw a man walk away from Christ to save and preserve his wealth. Maybe he got in his chariot and rode off, wearing his fine clothes, going to his home on top of the hill. And this is what he saw, maintaining his status. I wonder, I wonder if this caused him to think back to Mark chapter 1, as Brother Steve Chen read, that day when the Lord says, come follow me, and they left everything behind and followed him that day, where everything changed, where it, Peter's course in life went, was going this way, and all of a sudden was changed and took a hard left turn to follow Jesus Christ. I wonder if the Lord, the Lord caused Peter to think back about this time and think about it was a good living. Peter lived a good life, actually. He wasn't necessarily like the rich young ruler, but he had a fishing boat. It's a big deal. Passed down from generation to generation. He lived a good living. The Sea of Galilee was, was teeming with fish. He may not have been wealthy, wealthy like the rich young ruler, but he knew that this boat and these nets have provided for their family generation after generation after generation. And if Peter had any sons or daughters, then this is, would go on to the family behind him. It was everything changed that, night, that morning when Jesus Christ came walking down, preaching a, a message repent, uh, of repentance. Repent for the kingdom of heaven that's, that's at hand. Peter, Andrew, come follow me. Leave everything behind and come follow me. And in other words, Jesus asked him to do exactly what he did for the rich young ruler. And Peter and Andrew, James and John responded opposite of the rich young ruler. They went with Jesus. So maybe reality is beginning to sink in as they're marching their way to Jerusalem. Like, did we make the right decision? Do we have to give up so much to follow Jesus? Because in Matthew uh, 19, 27... Peter asked, what then will there be for us? So keep that in mind as, we, as I read Matthew 10, 28. Peter began to say to them, behold, we have left everything and followed you. Peter needed assurance. I believe Peter needed some kind of assurance right here. And perhaps as you're sitting here today, maybe you need some kind of assurance here. Maybe you're wondering if it's worth it too. I mean, after all, we're saved by grace. We believe this, amen. We are not saved by our good works. But do you ever wonder, was it worth it? I mean, maybe you think back to your friends where you went one way to follow Jesus Christ and, your, other, and your friends are living their lives as they choose to leave, live. Maybe they're non-believers and, and maybe uh, you see lukewarm churchgoers who haven't given up much. Their careers seem to be going well. They're living in a nice home. They're prospering. They're, they're raising children. They seem to be happy. Is it all worth it? Why sacrifice? You know, you may be thinking, is it worth it? Well, let's look, at, look what the Lord says in verse 29. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or mothers, or father, or children, or farm, for my sake and for the gospel's sake. Jesus acknowledges there is a sacrifice here. 
He sees, yes, I understand what you left behind, Peter. Yes, I understand what Andrew, James, and John, and the other disciples are left behind. I understand. So isn't that interesting and comforting that the Lord himself actually acknowledges, yes, I know you've given up some things to follow me. There is a cost. And then, but the Lord says, for my sake and the gospel's sake, he is very clear of why you left certain things, left certain relationships, Maybe it's created some tension with parents or family members. Maybe you turned down jobs. Maybe you turned down money. Maybe you turned down opportunities to follow Jesus. Because whatever you're doing before wasn't fit, so you had to change your course in life. But does it matter? We are saved by grace. Does it matter? Can't we just get into heaven and, and, and get as much as we can while we're on this side of eternity? Does it matter? No pain, no gain. I heard it said, good works do not get us into heaven. Amen. But good works follow us into heaven. You hear what I just said? Good works do not get us into heaven. Jesus Christ and his grace does. But good works follow us into heaven. Whatever we have done for the Lord, whatever we sacrifice for the Lord, the Lord will remember forever and ever. And not only in eternity, but even in this day here now, Look at verse 30. It says, except one or anyone, all who will receive, will receive 100 times as much now in this present age, whether you left houses or brothers or sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with even if you suffer persecutions, you will receive 100 times return even in this age. How does that work? Well, a lot of these are talking about relationships, mothers, brothers, sisters, Homes even. I mean, this present age, when you become a Christian, when you decide to follow Jesus Christ, you gain a whole spiritual family. And not only that, the quality of the bond is even deeper. Think about it. You may have non-saved relatives, praise God, and you're friends with them, and it's a good relationship. But with another Christian, you sh- we share the same spiritual heritage. The blood of Christ is coursing through our spiritual veins. We share the same blood. We share the same convictions and affections. We love Christ together. We share the same direction. We want a disciple. We want to be discipled. This is what Christians want. We want to be part of the Great Commission. So the relationships that we have with another Christian may be even deeper than your own siblings with your own mother or father or even with your own children of course we love our family and friends that's not what we're saying if they're unsaved but there's a unique bond when you look at each other in the eyes like yeah we believe the same things and this is what the lord's table the communion is all about we're able to come together and look around and say wow we believe the same things we love the same person we want the same things we want to pursue holiness in our lives that is unifying but what about in the age to come, 100 times? I mean, it's eternal life with God. This is where faith is turned into sight, and then now we're able to see Christ. We get to be with God forever. No more tears, no more pain, no more infighting, and now we're able to realize who is actually in my family. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. This is amazing. So the Lord is encouraging Peter and saying, listen, listen, It's going to be worth it. Yes, Peter, 
I know how much you've given up. I know how the course of your family uh, history has changed. I know, I know how you've altered generational wealth on, a, on an earth level. But look, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. If you've turned down higher paying things for the sake of the Lord and the gospel, it's worth it. The Christian life is in some ways the immigrant's hope. And maybe I resonate with this because my own parents are immigrants from Japan. And maybe you think about your own parents. Maybe you're an immigrant. Maybe you think of your grandparents or your great-grandparents. And immigrants have left home. They left something that's familiar. They left a, a familiar language, a familiar culture. They, they left home with delayed gratification in mind. What do I mean by that? Typically, a blue-collar immigrant will come to the new land, work, struggle, they sacrifice all that in the hopes of providing a better life for your children, for their children. And someday, all that is validated if they could see, wow, what opportunities that they had that we didn't get to have. That's the mind of an immigrant, typically, a blue-collar immigrant. And you're hoping for something better. And this is similar as a Christian, you're sacrificing now. You may be, see some of the benefits now. Praise God. It's particularly living in this nation. We're blessed in, immensely, but we don't know till later how this thing turns out. So as a Christian, we're able to invest into the future. We may have some returns now. Praise God. The Lord encourages us. But in the future, in heaven, in the age to come, eternal life, it'll be obvious in verse 31, basically, I believe Jesus sums it up, but many who are first will be last. And the last first, meaning if you want to store up treasures in heaven, sacrifice. Sacrifice for Christ. Sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. Sacrifice that more and more people will come to Christ. Sacrificing for Christ. It's worth it. Let's go into the next heading. The Christian life calls for suffering with Christ. Not only do we sacrifice for Christ, we suffer with Christ. In verse 32 and 34 through 34, Jesus is predicting his death. He says that he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be condemned. He's going to be betrayed by the 12 even. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be condemned to death by the Jews and I'm going to be delivered to the Gentiles who are going to mock him, spit on him, flog him. In other words, torture him with a whip. Just beat him, beat him, and beat him, and eventually be killed. The Lord is saying this to the 12 right now. He takes them aside. And as the Lord is trying to get them ready. The urgency, the handoff is coming, guys. I'm not going to be here longer. You need to get ready to take the handoff, the baton. But they're not ready yet. They're not ready. We're about a week out from, Pat, uh, from the cross on that Friday. And they aren't ready yet. Imagine if you're Peter, James, and John. Would you have been ready for that moment? Would you be like, okay, what do I got to do? I mean, I got a lesson a week, and now I have to represent you to the world to keep the gospel being spread from me to the next generation to the next generation. I'm not quite sure the apostles understood this because of what James and John asked in verse 35. Then James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus then links in that same moment, saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. 
what kind of question is that, right? In light of what the Lord shared, what kind of question is that? Well, Luke 18, 34 gives us some background here. It says, but the disciples understood none of these things in a parallel account in this statement. This statement was hidden from them and they did not comprehend the things that were said. They were blinded by their own ambition and pride. They were thinking about worldly greatness. They're arguing earlier who's going to be the greatest. So James and John are going to Jesus, hey, hey, before you go, okay, this, could you make sure that you pencil us in to sit on your left and your right? And this is what they're asking. I mean, the, the Lord's words perhaps just went over their heads. So what does it mean to be able to sit on the right and left of the Lord? This is about distinct honor. They're trying to secure a, a prestigious place with the Lord. Some ways I don't blame them. I mean, who wouldn't want to be near to the Lord? I don't blame them, but are you kidding me in that moment? The Lord says, you don't know what you're asking. Do you realize what you're asking, James and John? Do you realize that this, there's more to it than just sitting next to me? Do you realize what it's going to cost you? And in verse 38, he says this. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? These are two idioms or sayings. Basically, are you ready to suffer with me? Remember, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane soon, saying, Father, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. In, in Luke 12, he goes, but I have a baptism, Jesus says, to undergo and how distressed I am until it's finished. This is talking about the suffering of Christ. And Peter, James and John, do you understand? This is what you have to go through. Are you willing to suffer like that with me? And this is the response out of verse 39. And this said to him, we are able. We are able. I mean, there's God confidence and self-confidence, right? I mean, you want to be a confident person in God. Amen. You want to be confident and trust God because God is so great. That's the key. But this is a self-confident answer. It reminds me when Peter says, Lord, I will never forsake you. Even if everybody runs from you, I will be here with you. Self-confidence. Self-confidence. And the Lord says, well, you got one thing right. You, the cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. You're going to suffer, James and John. Matter of fact, James was the first one to die as a martyr. Acts 12, 2 says James was martyred first. He died by the sword. Matter of fact, Judas was a false disciple, so 10 out of the 11... Disciples would end up as martyrs. They would die early. John, the, bro the brother who was asking the same question, was persecuted and tortured his whole life. He's the only disciple to die at an old age, and he suffered greatly, though. He drank the cup. He drank the cup, and he would eventually die on the island of Patmos, a prison island where the Lord would use him to write the book of Revelation, and then he would die. You see, the Christian life is about suffering, Although in heaven, delayed gratifications in heaven, there is no more suffering. Praise God. Amen. But while we're on this side of eternity, great suffering. This is what the Lord says. He's, he's, he's making the expectations really clear for the disciples. And I believe, as we, particularly on this side of the world, I think we need to make this clearer and clearer to all of us. 
in some parts of the persecuted world, as Pastor Marco prayed for, that's just a fact of life. Life and death, imprisonment, beatings, losing family and friends, attacks on build, church buildings. I mean, that's a way of life. For us, I, I believe we need to be told these things. We're saved by grace. Amen and amen. And that's praise God. But do we understand that this side of life, there's suffering. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, all who desire to live godly, 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's like a promise. If you want to live for Christ, you're going to experience some kind of a persecution. Maybe friends, you lose friends. Maybe you lose business. Maybe you lose clients. Maybe you called certain things on social media. That's going to happen. It, says, it will happen. And why does it happen? John 15, 19, the Lord says, if you were of the world, the, the world will love its own. Meaning if you acted like the world, not Christ-like, you're going to fit in. But because you're not of the world, you don't act like the world, you act like Christ, you're following Christ. And, be, and But I chose you out of the world because of this, the world will hate you. It's a guarantee. The Lord is saying this is a guarantee. Who wants to suffer? No one wants a martyr's complex. We're not talking about that. No one wants to suffer. We understand this. But in some way, suffering is unavoidable. It just happens to you just because we live in this fallen world for the sake of Christ. But some suffering comes because of the choices that we make. And you know obedience can be expensive at times. Some suffering just happens to you. It just comes, just like the rain, just falls on you. However, some decisions, do I obey the Lord? This is going to be expensive. I'm going to lose relationships. It's going to hurt my relationships. I'm going to lose opportunities. I'm going to lose status in the world. Or do I not obey the Lord and preserve these things? That's a real choice now. And I empathize with many of you because I know the workplace environment that you must work in. I mean, I used to live in the secular world as well. What I say can hurt my advancement. What I say can get me canceled to some levels, if not canceled completely. I, I can only imagine. I hope this portion encourages you. So what's the point of suffering? Why should I suffer? Why should I choose to suffer by obeying God? Why? Let me explain in this way, by telling you about a man that I know that I greatly admired, Henry Hayashi. Henry Hayashi is a, one of those Nisei guys from back in the day who grew up, and he grew up during the internment, Japanese-American, and he enlisted in the 442nd. This is a war battalion. For younger people, you've got to understand who the 442nd is. There's incredible lessons there. There's incredible um, uh, inspiration there. And he used to get, it's told by his grandkids to me, that he would love going to Vegas to, for these annual reunions. And they had these reunions with these war vets. We'll get together, and, and obviously the, the numbers are shrinking because everyone's just getting older. And this is where he used to see fellow vets who experienced the internment, who left their moms and dads and sisters to go to enlist in the war, who went overseas, 
and they suffered together. They, they went through combat together. They've seen their comrades get wounded and killed and injured who come back with all kinds of things floating around in their heads. But when they saw their fellow brother together, and they may not have seen each other for a year or years, it's like that brotherhood never left. Why is that? Because war and suffering bonded them together. So what is your point on this? Well, Paul writes this. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him. Paul wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. See, Paul understood this. The apostle Paul understood this. The more I suffer with Christ, the more I know him. He knows me and you completely, but the more I know the Lord, no pain, no gain. To sit at the right and left hand of the Lord means that you're intimate associates. Not only is a place of honor, that means you're trusted confidant. That means you know each other. That means you're close to each other. Suffering with Christ brings us closer to him. And really, I want to be very clear. Suffering doesn't save us. Grace saves us. However, The more we suffer with Christ, the more we're able to realize the reality that means that we're one with Christ. That means we can actually relate to him when we're betrayed, because he's been betrayed. Have you been betrayed by any friends or family members? The Lord could understand, and now you understand the Lord more. Have you ever been condemned by people in judgment minimally? Well, the Lord's been misjudged and condemned. Have you been mocked before for your faith? The Lord's been mocked. You can relate to him now. Have you been mistreated? Yes. And if you die as a martyr, there's a special place for you where the Lord will take you in and care for you. He said, I understand. See, suffering is a spiritual mechanism that connects us and bonds us not for more salvation, but for us to know him more, to fellowship with him. That means shared in his suffering. We share in his suffering. Isn't that amazing? And this is what all Christians want. We want to love and know Christ more. We want to be tight with him, right? Not just on the paperwork, but in reality, in relationship-wise, we want to be tight with the Lord. So why should you suffer? Why should you give up things? It's going to draw you closer to him. It's going to happen. But who's going to actually have the actual right and left hand? I'm always kind of curious about that, verse 40. But to sit on my right or my left hand, left, this is not mine to give. It belongs to the Father, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Who's going to be sitting there at the right and left hand of Jesus Christ I think we're going to be surprised who's sitting there. I think we're going to be really surprised. Who's that person? Right? Who's suffered in worldly obscurity? Maybe it's one of those that Pastor Michael prayed for. Suffering. The Lord says to suffer with him. Let's go finish up with our third and final heading here. The Christian life calls for Sacrifice, suffering, and now serving like Christ. Serving like Christ. Serving like Christ. 
You should read 41 to 45 at the heading of my misprint, I think. The, the 12 are divided. They're mad, like, are you kidding me, James and John? How can they have the nerve to do that? I can't believe those guys. Maybe you're thinking, man, they beat me to the punch, <laughs> right? If they're honest, they probably wanted to do the same thing, but they're mad. They're like, indignant means they're, they're angry. They're like, they're, they felt like they were treated unjustly. How can they do that behind our backs? We heard them ask the, the Lord these questions. It's hard to be united when everyone wants to be great. Kind of like an all-star team, right? It's like you bring in a bunch of players. Everybody wants to shine. How do you win? Sometimes the best teams aren't all-star teams. Everyone wants recognition. But can you see how the 12 are getting close to dropping that baton? The Lord is trying to hand it to them. (laughs) They just keep running away, right? So you can kind of see the tension here. Verse 42, and calling them to himself, look, guys, come. Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. Jesus identifies the issue. In Mark 9.34, they're arguing, who is the greatest? The Lord sees, just like I saw into the heart of the rich young ruler, in his divine nature to see in the heart, he sees all the 12. He sees what, you're, what you and I are thinking right now. So these guys want to be great. And the, Lord, and the Lord says, they lord it over. They dominate one another. And they're great men. They're, these are men of status. Powerful men. Pr- prominent men. Men who have received their rewards on this side of eternity. They exercise authority. They tyrannize one another to get more power, to get more status. So that's how you're acting, guys. That's how you're acting, Verse 43, but it's not this way among you. It's not supposed to be like this way, guys. How are you going to keep this message going if this is about you? But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. But, right, the Lord says, but it is not this way. This is upside down thinking. It's a, it's a reverse economy in heaven. How the world may judge greatness is opposite how, the, how heaven gauges greatness. You're to be a servant, diakonos. You're supposed to be like a table waiter. Put on your apron, get your hands dirty, and start serving one another and start, stop acting like the owner of the restaurant. You are the table waiters. Pick up the dirty plates, put it in the sink, start washing the dishes, serve the food, and when the people complain to you, smile and say, how can I do this better? And bring the, keep bringing the food out. That's what the Lord is saying. Deacon, the word deacon, diakonos, means table waiter. That's what it means. You're serving. You're serving. You're serving. You're serving. And then in verse 44, I love it. The Lord doubles down on this. Like if, he didn't, if they didn't understand what that meant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Slave. Doulos. Slave. The lowest on the social ladder. You're not an employee. You're a slave, he says. Humble devoted, long-suffering slave with no regard for yourself, but your entire focus is to please your master. That's what he says. If you want to be great, if you want to be seen as high in my eyes, be a slave. Be a slave. Do you see yourself as a slave, church? 
Does that, does that word even like maybe insult you? Even I'm not a slave. Well, the Lord says you need to be a slave of all. Sherman Smith, one of my dear friends, dear brother, says, you know the type of servant you are when you're treated like one. You know the type of servant you are when you're treated like one. In other words, when people don't appreciate you, when your efforts are unnoticed, moms, I'm sure you can relate to what I'm talking about, right? When people aren't very thankful towards you, when you take it for granted, this will test your Christian maturity. As you serve, as you do things, if that thanks doesn't come back, the attaboy doesn't come back the way you want it and, and it doesn't build up your self-esteem, how do you respond? That's what we're talking about here. What kind of servant, what kind of slave are you? Do you serve to please the master alone? Are you content in being misjudged, mistreated, misunderstood, unappreciated, and says, Lord, you know, and I, I just want to please you. I just want to please you. No pain, no gain. We're praying for elders, by the way. Elders, we're praying and grateful. I, I believe we're getting closer and closer. It's just responding on the survey, which uh, I'll give you some of the results at the membership meeting. But we're getting closer. But elders, I just want to say, if you're thinking about being an elder, this is the harder road. You need to serve. You need to be a slave like Christ and exercise authority under Christ. How does this work? Let me just let's finish up here, verse uh, 45. How, how am I ever, maybe everything in your fibers are, is trembling right now. How does, how does this even work? Well, look, let's look at verse 45. Perhaps the key verse in all of Mark. For even the Son of Man, that's talking about Jesus himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, this word ransom is loaded with so much information right there. Just to give you an idea, if you and I were interested in freeing a prisoner, a slave, you pay a ransom. This, is, this carries all that meaning. I want her. This is what I pay. And the Lord didn't pay money. I want him. And the Lord didn't pay goods for you. He paid with his own blood. To the gospel, if you're a guest here, this is what the Christianity is all about, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, not by conquering everyone and killing everybody, maybe how the disciples wanted it, but by dying and going to the cross, by taking literally the wrath of God the Father. He took on the punishment that every one of us deserves on the cross, he surrendered his life. I laid down my life for the sheep, the, the Lord says, and took on the wrath of God so that us forgiven sinners can be forgiven of our sins and instead of experiencing the wrath of God, receive the inheritance of heaven. We get treated as sons and daughters. This ransom came at a high price. Acts 20 says that he purchased with his own blood. So when he's predicting his death and, and resurrection, his betrayal, condemnation, 
and his torture and the mocking and the spitting, he's talking about the price that he's got to pay. He is coming to conquer. But he paid with his own life. And so what does that mean? So I asked this question, how is it possible for me to be a slave? Friends, Christians, if you have been ransomed by Christ... He is Lord of your life. He owns you and me. He purchased you and me. Meaning, we're his slaves. That's how it works. Jesus is Lord is our battle cry. Jesus is Lord is our mission statement. We are consumed by pleasing him alone. Let me show you what, how this transferred into Peter. 2 Peter 1.1 Peter calls himself a slave and apostle of Christ. John in Revelation 1, 1 says, his slave, John. Paul in Romans 1, 1 and other places calls himself a slave of Christ. If you want to be a slave to all, you need to first understand we're a slave to Christ first. Do you live that way? Do you think that way that Jesus is my Lord and I want to please him with everything I got? Is that how you think? I know some of you do. As I look into your eyes, I know some of you do. I know this. But for all of us, we all could grow in this area, amen? I know I can. So that I could say like Paul, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more to Christ. In the end, what we want to hear, friends and brothers and sisters, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we want to hear in the end. So is it worth it? Is the pain worth it? You bet. No pain, no gain. It's absolutely worth it. Whatever we sacrifice, however we suffer, however we serve for the Lord in this side of eternity will echo into eternity forever. God will remember every single thing that we did for him. It's absolutely worth it. If we only knew how much it was worth it, we'd double down. We just keep doubling down right now. We're just like, give us more. Give me more. Give, how, can, how can I give more? How can I do this? Not for our salvation. I want to be that very clear. We're not legalists here, okay? I just want to be sure, like, where's Pastor Rocky? But to see the joy of the master's face. Isn't that amazing? No one sacrificed more. No one suffered more. No one served more than Christ. He was punished by God for you and me. No one suffered more. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time to preach on Mark 10. Um, Jesus, you are the greatest. You're first forever and ever. Amen. Your sacrifice, your suffering, your service, no one could outdo you, Lord. So Father, we don't want to add to the work of Christ. We just want to come alongside like Christ and be like Christ. Thank you for the opportunities to sacrifice for you. Thank you for the opportunities to suffer for you. Thank you for the opportunities to serve like Christ. I pray your spirit will empower us to be faithful to you and be able to see opportunities to serve you. So thank you, Father. Thank you for Christ, the Holy One. In Jesus' name, amen.